And welcome to the 23andWe podcast. I am your host, Christian Shabu. Thank you so much for joining us for this second episode of this limited podcast series. This episode is going to be focused on the third and fourth installment of The Last Dance. Now, before we get into today's episode, we'd love it if you would subscribe and share on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. All right, y'all, let's go. You and Drew just look ready for the podcast. Lamar and I came here looking like we just rolled out of bed. Listen, you don't see, you don't see what I'm looking like. <laughs> Dude, when this is the highlight of your day uh, and you put your kids to bed, you get yourself ready. What time do you put them to bed? Oh, they went to bed like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I got a, I got a, I got my son's gonna be eight on Friday. Wait, your son's birthday is a day before Shabu's? Yeah. How pissed off was he when he wasn't born a day later? So pissed. <laughs> <laughs> my son was born like six weeks early, and uh, and then when we were in the hospital, I did say like to myself, I was like, oh, he's gonna be born on Shabu's birthday, and then when he was born on the first, I was just like, well. You can't share a birthday with all the great ones. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm buttering them up. I'm, I want the good I want the good quotes tonight. You want you want it's all going to you. The whole podcast is you tonight, Will. I'm just joking. Yeah, but he's got hair like yours. I gotta t- I gotta ask you how you do your your hair. His hair is all curly and like he doesn't love it though. He doesn't like his curls. So No. I only started liking it last year. You grow to love him. Yeah, you gotta grow to love him. Obviously, in the uh, in the episodes last night, there were some uh, fantastic, and by fantastic, I mean horrible hair choices. Saw a great bowl haircut from many fans in the like early '90s. Saw Doug Collins' sweet Jerry curl slash perm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so my question to y'all is, what has been your most regrettable hair decision in your life? It can be like hair on your head, but also facial hair. Like, what's been the most regrettable? decision are you triggering right i mean this, <laughs> <laughs> this mustache right now that's one of your best decisions man yeah. Oh, yeah going into senior year that summer i was really into nsync and was just like i had i had no qualms of being into nsync and particularly justin timberlake and so i decided to lean into the curls and i definitely bleached my my tips i got bleached tips and it was just a bad decision from the very beginning like it, it just looks terrible. I immediately regretted it, but I didn't, I could have easily just cut it off because we had summer basketball, could have just shaved it off, but I felt really bad because I asked my mom to pay for it. So I just, I wrote it out and you can tell how embarrassed I was by it because there was only one picture from back then that like actually documents that I had that haircut. Like it just looked horrific. Did it look wet or was it dry? Like, <laughs> was it like? That's a good it- question. Like Jim Collins was like, like Doug Collins was kind of wet, like not because he was sweaty, but it's wet. You know, right? Yeah, nobody had introduced me to any sort of Afro sheen or anything, so you know, <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I would put uh, I would put gel in it, but that didn't really work because it didn't keep it like didn't keep it loose, so it just tightened it up. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. a bad decision. I mean, look, I wasn't gonna share this, but we're gonna go there. I'll piggyback off of the the Justin Timberlake train. I didn't do the tips, I did the perm. No, you didn't. So like, Asian man with the perm doesn't really flow. I can't even register, I can't even see what that is. 
What is Thankfully, it? Thankfully, I had a loving mom who was just like, yeah, you do it. And <laughs> my hair grew out so quick. It lasted for maybe a month of soccer season. I, I can't say that I regretted any. Um, I think there's one that stands out that people were like, mm, why would you do that to yourself? But y'all remember when um, Larry Johnson, grandmama, sure. used to do like the, the, the middle line. I think Marbury used to do it too. So I used to do like the little penis slit here <laughs> in front of my head. Like, honestly, that's what they, that's what people used to make fun of me and call it. Like your head looks like a penis. Uh, but it was like a part that was maybe like an inch into the middle of my head, just in the front there. And you did it yourself or you had to have No, no, Barbara, I asked the barber to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was definitely like a thing like Larry Johnson, yeah. was doing, you know, but like, doesn't mean it didn't look like a penis. Like it did. So. <laughs> So yours is a lot cooler because you're like going to the barber and you're like, hey, right, right. make me look like Larry Johnson. I'm trying <laughs> to convince my mom about this guy on TV and then I got to go to her hair salon. I dyed my hair purple thinking that it was the temporary purple, like the like the sort of like, you know, it's going to wash out temp purple. It was not that. And, it, and then I spiked it all out and uh, I put on like one of those temporary tattoos or whatever. And so I was, we were in the middle of basketball season. And so I had this spiky purple hair and this temporary tattoo. And our algebra teacher was sitting next to my mom in the bleachers and just goes, did you let William get that tattoo and dye his hair like that? And she's like, I thought that was like a school spirit thing. And that tattoo is not real. (laughs) But the but the purple hair was was it was only a month but it lasted for maybe longer than a month like two two and a half months where I, then it ended up being purple tips because it just wouldn't grow out. I mean, I'm just really glad that we didn't have smartphones back then, right? Because oh, there's virtually no evidence of any of this, with the exception of us just mentioning it. But like physical yeah, yeah, evidence. Yeah. Yeah, There's just yeah. none of it, right? But, like, think about, like, yeah, think about this generation or, or our kids, your kids, like, any of those mistakes that they make along the way, there is visual evidence of that for the rest of their life. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got there, Drew? Reese's Pieces. Bring in the sponsor in. They're going to sponsor us soon. <laughs> they are. That's, that's the second mention. I want to get into the two most recent episodes of The Last Dance, episode three and four, uh, and get just first impressions. Let's go around the world, get those first impressions. Uh, I just want to start off by saying that, you know, I thought going into this experience, I would maybe not like Michael Jordan as much as I did or remember liking him as a competitor. But I got to say, like, I really enjoy uh, the candidness that he's bringing Uh, in these interviews because he could easily do like the polished like player thing that he did like back in the mid 90s and stuff and we saw some of that in the episodes but I really like his reactions like when he talks about Pippen getting the migraine and you can tell like he's understanding but also he's like that was ridiculous yeah come on like and you can tell he's upset about that right and he was upset about Rodman going to like Las Vegas for 48 plus hours and he's like well what are you gonna do right but I like all of those reactions uh, to him just like keeping it really honest and keeping it straight with people. I think it was weird because when they were promoting the, the, the whole documentary, I think the main line they were using was, people are going to think I'm an asshole at the end of this. And I'm like, no, I think we're, people are going to endear you more based on what we've seen so far. Um, so 
I, I think the opposite is happening. So maybe they were just using that as a marketing tool, which obviously they were. I'd actually watched the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30. So a lot of that first episode was a lot of, in, a lot of that was in the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30. So um, I think, you know, obviously Rodman stood out. That guy, he, he would be relevant to pop culture still to this day. You know, late 80s, late 90s, like they needed Rodman. The NBA and sports needed Rodman. And to Lamar's point, you know, not only would he be beloved now, but like he set the stage. He would have thrived in social media area. He was this antithesis of the polished player. And so like, but like good punk rockers, they perform when they're on stage. So they're going to play the songs that they know. And Rodman is going to go out and he's going to do and play the game and all that stuff. So like in the era of like me trying to be a punk rocker or like faking my way to punk rock, I think looking back at after watching these two episodes was like maybe Rodman sits up there as like an entity where I was like, oh, that's alternative culture. Like that's what, that's what, you know, everybody who is trying to lean outside of the norm is looking at is like a Rodman, not the best role model, but like at the same time, like the dude won championships and he performed when he needed to perform. So like as an adult, I can almost see what Phil Jackson saw on him a little bit. Definitely a disruptor, right? And obviously it was a disruptor on the court, obviously a disruptor in culture. I mean, what's interesting is I think a lot of the conversation, whether it was in that 30 for 30, you're mentioning Lamar, or even the conversation back in the 90s was all about understanding how much of this is an act by Rodman and how much of it is like sincerely this guy just finding himself like throughout the 90s. So like, what impression do y'all get from even just what we saw last night, but, but just what we know about Rodman? How much do you think of it like was an act and just kind of feeding into you know, whether it was like the celebrity culture feeding into that role of being a, a punk rocker or an alternative kind of character? Well, I mean, again, I, I, I think that the fact that you, you saw the arc between the Pistons to the Spurs to the Bulls and somebody in that, and apparently it was some, you know, assistant GM or whatever, but somebody in there said, you know what, I can, I can make this person in the box that they think they're living in work in our box and good leaders and phil jackson obviously figured rodman out to a certain extent jordan yeah he was pissed a lot of times but sort of figured him out pippen tolerated him but like it was mostly it seemed like phil jackson figured out how to lead this human being into the same direction in the same herd that he needed everybody else to go so like even great disruptors, when they have great leaders, can figure out that they're part of a greater, you know, cause and a greater good, and they can all move in the right direction. He had a couple of blowups, but you know that that's that's what they did. But they they pulled him back around. Hey, you know what's funny about the blowups is at least in the documentary, every time he had it, he acknowledged it and he owned it. He said, "My bad." You get it right and he didn't say it that way right like he literally showed up one to own it right he said like he asked michael jordan just for a cigar in his hotel room i thought it was so awkward and so beautiful at the same time and then you have the flip reverse of when robin comes back from vegas and jordan's like get your ass to practice basically in your pajama pants <laughs> <laughs> two things i want to say about rodman 
you know, when they're showing some of the footage and the freeze frame shots, I mean, I just remember those iconic like hustle moments, you know, like him diving in the stands. And I gotta be honest, like same vivid memory as you see MJ soaring through the air, you know? So it was almost like Lamar talked to this last week, but it's almost like this destiny to be together, right? Of just these performers. And then the other thing is, you know, Rodman, like he was just authentic, you know, when he showed up on the court and then when he needed to be himself off. And um, I think it was, I was watching this masterclass with Hans Zimmer and he was talking about writing the score for Pirates of the Caribbean and just like basing off of Johnny Depp, right? Making that theme song. And he goes, look, like if you're gonna compose anything, you don't want the complete character that's already put together. You want the character that needs to evolve, right? And has a little, um, kind of mediocrity to him or like a little bit more sexuality or just some kind of like naughtiness. And you could describe all those things with Rodman. And then when he needs to be excellent, he was excellent. I mean, I remember seeing that stat on the documentary. He had seven games with 20 boards and no points. That is nuts. It's awesome. It's awesome is what it is. He, yeah. I was going to say he influenced Will a lot with the purple hair, the tattoo, like, Clearly, he was your role model, not we Jordan. We figured it out. Will, you were miscast on our basketball team. You should have been playing point. You should have been playing sh- power forward. I should have just been rebounding. I should have just ditched the sh- jumper and just gone low post the whole time. Yeah, your mom tells the math teacher, Rob is his favorite player. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lamar, I mean, one of the interesting things, you made this point uh, last week, right? But But looking at – these guys, right, and Pippen and Jordan, but also now Rodman with really humble beginnings, right, and certainly was not the kind of person or character he's known to be in his professional career early on. It seemed like a lot of those guys, they were meant to be who they were, and they were meant to find each other, you know what I mean, Um, and I think uh, everyone should go watch that Rodman 30 for 30, because it really tells a, a just, he probably had it the worst out of everyone, um, out of the, the three of those guys. But to think that he grew up in Oklahoma or went to school in Oklahoma, to think that Pippen was in Arkansas and to think that Jordan was in North Carolina, like these small town sticks, you know, from the sticks dudes that grew up to just be monsters in culture, you know what I mean? And, and, and athletes. So um, I just, it just feels like they were meant to be, I don't, I wonder if they even talked about their backgrounds, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if they even discussed it amongst themselves. Like, no, we actually have more in common than we, than we do, or than we think we do. Throughout episode three and four, you know, there's this continued refrain that, that there was just something about Michael that understood Dennis, right? And maybe, maybe it was that, right? It also, it's interesting to point out that Rodman came to basketball late, right? It wasn't something that, you know, he was pursuing as like, oh, this is going to be the, my career, right? He wasn't pursuing that from a young age. It was a thing that... Right. It was after being homeless for a couple of years, he picked up a ball, noticed he had some athletic ability with it. It was like, okay, I'm going to pursue this thing because it might be a way out. Right. But by the, by the end of certainly episodes three and four, we get a sense from some of his interviews that like basketball ended up being not just a way for him to succeed in life, but also was a passion for him in some way. So it's interesting to think about that. Cause I think a lot of times the story about basketball players or any professional athletes is oh they they've had this passion from an early age but that's not always the story and certainly was not the story with Rodman you know what's interesting about that and it tags to the first week 
you know how it was Roy Williams that said Jordan could turn it on and off? I think Rodman was the same way, right? Because Rodman, what I really appreciate is when he broke down and talked about his rebounding techniques and he had his, his friends shoot late night 3M, 4M, and then he would just watch tape and look and see if the ball hits the rim this way. Is that, you know, like that is switch on. I, I think to add to the Rodman thing, and I, you know, there's something that rung true for me that, you know, talking about lessons outside of basketball, that trust and autonomy in your work goes a long way. And I don't know how it works for you guys and, and what you do, but I know for me um, to have somebody trust me. And even if I like mess up, they don't, not they don't hold me accountable, but they, they don't like, they don't read me for it. Like they have a, a sense of empathy and understanding um, to trust that like, I'm going to bounce back and do what I need to do. And I just feel like in our society in general, uh, I just think about, particularly I think about black women and I think about my girlfriend in particular, about how sometimes like when you are always seem to be the opposition, how you can get put and backed into a corner, especially professionally and at work. If you are the person that's always opposed, it's not that you're opposing the idea, you're just presenting a different way of thinking about it. And people start to be like, well, well we know so-and-so is gonna say something about it and it kind of backs you in a corner. And I just, I just think it's so dope that um, they allowed him to be himself um, and allowed him to kind of like, the freedom to be who he was, seeing that that was actually gonna maximize his performance as opposed to being micromanaged. Like any of us would probably be better under with trust and autonomy versus being micromanaged. You know? I mean, it's interesting. We've, we've talked about a lot about Rodman as, as the man, right? I, I think we've got to acknowledge like certainly his play on the court. I mean, I think the thing that always stuck out for me with him is a moment was in that uh, 96 series against Seattle. I remember him, I won, he's a dominant force on that team, rebounding-wise, defense-wise, blocks-wise, all that sort of stuff. I remember seeing him unravel Frank Burkowski, who you likely do not remember that name, but was like a 30-something year old, had been in the league a while, was a veteran, uh, forward, didn't get a lot of playing time in that series, like maybe got like 70, 80 minutes the whole series, but came in uh, during like games three and four to play and within a quarter, Rodman would have that guy unraveled mentally. Like the guy was ineffective because Rodman, not just because of his play, but also understood like the mental part of it and like how you get under people's skin. Rodman actually did do that to a number of people though, I feel like. Like he was the guy who, I mean, you saw the clip of uh, Tom Chambers where he knocked the ball out of that dude's hands on like once and Chambers got back and then he knocked it out and then he stole it again. Like he was tenacious. And to the point that Drew was making about his sort of calculating brain about how his technique and rebounding was so efficient and, and, and just sort of knowing the angles and knowing birds was going to spin and Jordan's was going to come off a different way. Like he was so maniacal in terms of the way that he understood how that game was going to go he would break you down mentally because you were just frustrated because you couldn't get an edge on him you there was just no when when it was on his thing like you could almost ignore him on the offensive like when you were playing defense against him but like if you were trying to play offense again you just you couldn't get an edge on him so i can see why 
guys like Frank Bukowski would crumble because he was just so tenacious. Like he couldn't, you couldn't figure it out because he was so perfect at the thing that he was designed to do. And he figured out because he, he figured it out. Like, I mean, that was part of the, one of the, the, the study is, is he just, he's like, Oh, I, I figured out what I'm supposed to be good at defense and rebounding. So I mean, when guys are that good, it's like Jordan on offense. That's why the Pistons were the bad boy Pistons. They, they said, don't let him get up in the air because he's a magician. And, and to that Jordan point real quick, well, I think the thing I was struck by in episode three and four that obviously like we saw when we were kids watching Jordan, but set like the, the path for future players like Colby, like Allen Iverson, like a lot of players we see today was Jordan's ability to like use the contact in the air and like do whatever he had to to still get the ball in and one it looks beautiful but like he's one of the first players i can remember getting in the air and not trying to avoid the contact but rather like found a way to like use that contact and like pivot off of it and everything i was like man that was a part of his game that i don't think i really i really appreciated when i was a kid but now as an adult I'm like wow that is again craftsmanship people can't see what i just did but i it was the first image of the of him going behind his back over his head getting hit in the air and tossing it over his head because he had the ability to maneuver in the air and then flick it over his head and those are the clips where you're just like i don't i mean you see the you see dr j going underneath the hoop and like making maneuvers a little bit in the air but like jordan was the one to perfect it and particularly in those you know you know learning the lessons of like getting knocked in the paint like being able to maneuver his body and get it up behind his head it, it just it, it's absolutely incredible I think last week at the at the beginning I said something about like I didn't feel connected to Jordan and I just got reamed with that but with my friends by the way my friends were like what the hell are you talking about like who who wasn't connected to Jordan like you're an idiot like you don't watch basketball but watching what Will just described is what actually what I really really remember about Jordan is he invented the trick shot. Like he was the first person to do crazy things with the basketball, like consistently all the time. The you know, like kind of things that you just described. And I was like, that's what it was. Like, that's what I remember aboard. When you're out in your driveway, you're trying to do, you're not shooting threes all day. You're trying to do like whatever, like trying to do whatever the, the move is because of, of Jordan. What was the move, if anything, for, for all of y'all, what was the move from Jordan that you practiced? right? Maybe the most, maybe it was just like the one that you practice, right? For me, it was that like, he would fake uh, to the inside, he'd fake inside to the paint, he'd be backing somebody up, fake to the inside of the paint, and then do that like spin away jumper, right? Like that was the shot that I practiced all the time, because I had to because I had guys like Will I had to play against who were always far taller than I was. It was like the only thing I could try to do to get some distance. But but that was the move that was like, Oh, that's, that's incredible. Like that, that's what I practiced all the time. Yeah, my best um, failed attempt was definitely the 91 layup where he went up, you know, against the Lakers. I guess they dictated it was game two, you know, up from the free throw line, basically fake to the right, switch over the left hand and lay it up. And uh, definitely didn't make the field goal. Definitely fell flat on my face. You did it in game? We tried it again. <laughs> in game? I mean, you know, in the backyard, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Also, he did he did that unnecessarily. Like he did re, yeah. watching that replay is like he didn't need to. You didn't need to do that, bro. You didn't need to do that, bro. Why'd you, why'd you? I I will say I practiced that move and it didn't go well ever. 
I did, I practiced it behind the head one. Cause I was just like, that's going to be a thing. Maybe like if I go into the lane and then like I'm blocked from one direction, maybe I'll do that. And I, I remember definitely doing the behind the head and it was always like, I would try to just ease it in there and it took forever. It, it just, it, but it seemed watching it again and again, it seemed so natural to him. Like he just has such a feel for it. And even the, even the fake dunk to layup move, it just it just was like, oh, that that looks natural. That that you can't replicate it. So as much as you're gonna practice it, it's never gonna feel genuine because it was just what he did. Do you guys think he practiced those moves? Because I don't think he. I don't think so either. I don't. I mean, maybe think so. in practice it happened, but yeah, like you know, you think about Steph Curry, right? You know, and how kids now want to lock in from deep three, but like he is putting in the time to lock that down. I don't think Jordan did that, right? That was like the maestro in the air in the moment, just to have that much hang time, the confidence to try and the touch. To that point, like what I'm trying to think about his jumping ability and compare him to who who is he comparable to him now? Because you don't look at Jordan and be like, oh, this dude can jump out the gym, right? But, like, this dude probably had the best ups out of any NBA player ever. Because the, the, the skills don't translate anymore, right? The jumping ability and then the shooting ability and all the other stuff, it just – none of it, it – You're one or the other. You're, yeah, you're just sort of, like, in that space that where you're one or the other. I, you know, it's funny. When I, when I started talking about the behind-the-head thing, I did think about Steph Curry because I was like, that's exactly the people who – kids want to emulate that's 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 the person that's the basketball player that kids want to emulate now because he seems so it seems attainable almost whereas I think Jordan's was spur of the moment body recognition beyond belief like just an, an insane awareness of body to court recognition where there isn't maybe a better I mean, LeBron, I mean, we're going to probably have the LeBron Jordan conversation later in all of this, but like there is a coordination to the court that exists in rare human beings. And Jordan is exceptional at that. I had forgotten just how athletic when we saw the clips of like the 96, 97, 98 Bulls, when Pippen, Jordan, Rodman were at their, were at their peak how athletic that team was and explosive they were, right? And like, just remembering that like all those guys at that point were in their 30s, right? So it wasn't like they were the young guys anymore that could jump through the roof and out of the gym simply because they're young, but they were just still so explosive. Like it, it was incredible to, to watch some of the game footage because we got more game footage in episodes three and four. I, I know you just said uh, 96, 97 version of Pippen, Shabu, but I really loved I think it was like the 90, 89, 90, 91 version of Pippen Unleashed, right? Like freak athlete, you know, like it literally looked like MJ cloned. He just wasn't doing the things that Will was talking about in the air, right? But I mean, pure athleticism, length, speed. So that gets to our second bigger theme of these two episodes, which is what I like to call cultivating that winner's mentality, right? So to your point, Drew, is that there was a point early on in MJ and Pippen's career in like 89 and 90, when they were both unleashed in really powerful ways. And they also had Horace Grant on the team at that point and all that sort of stuff, but they still couldn't get past 
the Detroit Pistons, right? They had that team, they had that Goliath, right? And they couldn't get past them for several times, right? And it made me think about how important it is in order to have that kind of success and to, and to develop that winner's mentality, you need your Goliath, right? Like, and we've seen that multiple times, but it was, it was interesting to, to just see how they struggled against Detroit, uh, particularly in a league that was just super competitive and physical in the late eighties or in the early nineties. It's just, it's classic perseverance. You know what I mean? Like you have to go back and retool and get better. Um, and in, in order to do that, you have to care. You know, you have to, you have to want to get better. You have to be ready to get better. You have to be, um, your ego has to shrink a little bit. You know what I mean? Because you then need coaching. I thought it was dope that when they brought in the triangle offense um, and just Michaels, he was a little reluctant, but he wasn't not coachable. And I just think that says a lot about him um, and all those guys to like make the necessary adjustments to get better to go do something greater you know what i mean and and that's what it requires from everyone as a life lesson in general is that like you don't just be great you got to work towards greatness um and sometimes you got to hire somebody to help you get there a coach or a mentor or whatever and um so make sure your ego's not too big to where you can't get around it to get what you need what i loved and attacking what you said lamar is you know it's like trying to go against your your older brother right you you talked about this a lot last week should be going against will it's just like you're hungry to get better and then you gotta like kind of flip that switch of okay there's got to be one more thing i can do to finally get over the hump which was the lifting right and like and the move that you were saying will is he did that after the lifting right because it was against i think lambeer right he took just the body and kept it and one thing i loved is in the documentary how the Pistons would say it and meet um, newscasters. They're just like, oh, like the switch has changed, right? The Bulls are going to take it. I think there is a lot of the parts that clicked on the right order. But, you know, it, it seems to me, at least in watching the doc, that MJ always had it. He always had a winner's mentality. And, and you know, he talked about, you know, he stacked the practice against and whatever, whatever it was. It was always that way. But um, but his revelation sort of in, in, in the sense of like, okay, now I'm going up against an opponent who doesn't care that I'm the best at what I do or whatever it is. It's like he has to do something different. And so – I think that there's there there is that cultivation of of the winner's mentality that you know sometimes you have to adapt to what your environment is and and this I think sometimes the speed in which you adapt is the part that differentiates yourself and we talked about it again yeah in all of the moves around the basket he is the best at orientating himself to getting a good shot right in the air. So like he already knows how to make snap decisions to get himself a better shot. And it's almost like, you know, you look at uh, situations where uh, teams are too, maybe too slow to adapt to a certain trend in other sports or whatever it is. It's like they can't figure out where the league is going to, to start making championships. Jordan recognized it right away. He's like, oh, that's what I need to do. 
and it's patience too, right? Because to your, to your point, Will, he definitely showed those signs of that winner's mentality. I mean, all, certainly all the way from college, but early on in his NBA career, right? Like when they're detailing the first season with Doug Collins, right? The fact that he was so clear that it was really important for them to win that first game that Doug was coaching in Madison Square Garden, right? Like, because that's a narrative, right? If you can win that, then like, that's just showing everybody outside in the league that you can win on the brightest spotlight of MSG. And then even going into that series against Cleveland in 89, he talks about, oh, we had lost to Cleveland all six games during the regular season. We had nothing to lose. Again, another like hallmark of a winner's mentality, but it was the patience piece, right? Like the ability to be patient for two seasons afterwards to, to withstand what Detroit was doing to them. That is part of the winner's mentality. Cause it's e- like, it would be easy to just, face what Detroit was throwing at him and just give up and be like, I'm done. Right. Like who's to say that if he didn't have that mentality, he just goes to another team or, or, or does something different. Right. And doesn't stick with it. So I thought that was really interesting. It was also interesting the you see in 89, you see Ron Harper and you see Dennis Rodman, two people that were guarding MJ. And then several years later, they're his teammates. It's like, it's a game recognizes game, I guess is the best way to say it is like, those two dudes, like Harper wanted a piece of him bad. And, you know, he watched Elo get torched. And Rodman was on him, you know, during the Pistons stuff. So, like, those guys, game recognizes game. They knew they were up against the best. And, and you know, eventually they were like, all right, let me get, let me get to that other side. And let me go join that guy because you, you want to. I, I, and I think – I think it's respectable for sure. <laughs> and it's smart on them, their side. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think they, they probably don't want to admit it. Cause they kind of get, they make fun of the guys now that are like buddy, buddy. I, I just think it speaks to the brotherhood of what the NBA is. And I just, I just think that he was like, I got respect for these guys. And I think they, they're winners. They can help us win. Um, I'm going to, let's go get them. You know what I mean? And I, that going back to what I was saying about ego, like that, you could be like, nah, I don't want them on our team. You know what I mean? But why? If they're going to make you better, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I just think it speaks to that. And I think speaking to hearing Jordan speak, like he was about that. He was about team and making people better and, and, and lifting people up and holding people accountable. And, you know what I mean? As, as a leader, that's, that's all you can ask for. And as somebody who's following, that's what you want out of your leader. I just keep hearing this phrase in my back of my head, like whatever it takes, right? Maybe that's very Marvel and Captain America, but like, I think what Jordan got, and I like this in the 91 title run, right? When they started introduced the triangle, like you said, you know, they had that nice little John Paxson highlight and it was uh, Phil Jackson's quote that struck me. He's like, it says a lot when the greatest icon the NBA has ever had realizes he doesn't need to have the ball in his hands all the time. You know, and it is exactly what Lamar said of like, if your leader is willing to like, you know, turn down his ego to turn up others, you know, and and we all play basketball, right? Like you all need that confidence. And they always say, you all got to hit that shot to get someone warm and going, you know, like Jordan figured that out and learned to trust people. Well, Drew, I think you set us up perfectly to go into the yearbook quote, the quote of the night. You mentioned Phil Jackson. For me, the quote of the night came from Doug Collins, and he said, the greatest respect you can give a great player is to coach him and coach him hard. 
right? I think that there's oftentimes a sentiment or mentality that, you know, when somebody's at the, the peak of their skills or it's just so clear they're the greatest, you know, just let them do their thing, let them rock. But in fact, I think some of our greatest coaches, whether it's in basketball or in life, show that the way that you really cultivate the, the greatest players or the greatness out of people is to like really coach them hard, right? And play them hard. When Doug Collins coached his first game and he was describing how he had all the, the you know, the stuff come out of his mouth, <laughs> and he sees this cup come to him. He says, coach, take this water, <laughs> rinse out that stuff. I'm not going to let you lose your first game. <laughs> and MJ goes out setting, at the time, a record at MSG, 50 points. Like, unbelievable. You know, and I love their relationships, just to piggyback on that. You know, like, like dudes kissing each other on the cheek. Like, I did not know that side of Doug Collins or MJ. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? It was beautiful. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact that MJ just like could impose his will on a game and like be able to say that, like, coach, I'm not gonna let you lose your first game. And just with 100% confidence, know that that's the case. Like he was going to win that game. It's just like a hallmark of Jordan. On a different note, Will, what was the quote that stuck out to you? I had two, uh, purely because I, I sort of, you know, obviously, I think like most people, I watched him sort of in succession the the Rodman stuff stuck with me obviously and uh the first one was just when he was came back and he's sitting at the bench and he's working out and he's got this little Gatorade cup and he just looks at the camera and he goes kamikaze and he just takes a slit so like I was just like oh dude man I can't believe that so it just it was just it was just kamikaze and then, uh, and then the other one was was him trying to probably do good, but then also like a, a a very good articulation of the enablement of the media because he was in this middle. They were in the middle of like the monologue of like all the extracurriculars that Robin had to deal with. Craig Sager walks down the hall, and he just goes here's 20 bucks. Like he hands him a $20 bill and he goes, that'll pay for your fine. And it's like, like imagine the crazy stuff that goes through your head when you see a dude just like hand you that money and you're just like, Oh, that guy's betting against me. You know, like it was just, he was up against all of it. I mean the Craig Sager piece, it just reinforces why over decades players have just been like oh yeah Craig Sager he's the guy right the fact that Z like Sager would do that and then yeah the poetry of kamikaze when we're focusing in episodes on Dennis Robin was just like that's that's just poetry like that's just that's also just good uh documentary filmmaking right there uh so also really like poetic and really amazing are the music choices in this documentary I think documentaries can like be made or broken by their choices so I mean just a couple here. We got Big Pun was in there, some cool Modi. We also had like Prince Party Man, which was literally a song just made for the Batman soundtrack, the very first Batman. And the fact that they played that during the Dennis Rodman episodes. I will not incredible. get I will not get too deep into what I do as a career, but that no, get, go acquiring deep. A, no, acquiring the rights to that song for anything is some hardcore hardcore shit like you don't get rights to prince for anything and that's some serious business 
that plus 23 years later to make a documentary probably helps, right? <laughs> right. The estate is much easier to deal with than the artist. That's actually why they waited 23 years. They were just trying to get the rights to that obscure Prince song. Also want to shout out, there were some ads for Power Bars. Shout out to Power Bars. I loved Power Bars back in the day. Favorite flavor, oatmeal raisin. I will go to the grave. That was my favorite one. Get out of here, oatmeal raisin. It was delicious. You <laughs> Am I the only one that ate power bars? None of you guys ate power bars? I ate power bars, but I don't think I ever I didn't know it was a reason. flavor. No. That yeah. that wasn't a, a child's snack, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for a fat kid in middle school who was trying to reform himself from eating oatmeal cream pies, the oatmeal raisin power bar was a good supplement. It probably didn't count that I probably ate three at a time, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> Also, shout out Horace Grant with the glasses goggles. Oh, Grant. Styling and profiling. Lamar, I want to know, would you wear those glasses today for no reason? Well, what you should know is I wore goggles in high school basketball. And they used to they used to call me, they used to call me Horace Grant. I um 10th grade, I wore I wore Rex specs, bro. Awesome. And listen, talk about embarrassing. That was worse than the haircut. Well, I think the haircut contributed to it because Horace had that thing too. You were the Horace of Nebraska, man. Yeah. Wait, Lamar, real quick, because unless Shabu or Will wore Rex Specs too, like walk us through what it's like visually playing with those. Because I can't imagine that plus like perspiration and all. So are you nearsighted or farsighted? I need it for distance. Okay. Uh, same, right? And so I felt like the Rex Specs were opposite. Like they made they made they look like bottle caps you know what i mean like even though it was my prescription they it really felt made everything smaller um and then the lenses would still pop out so like the lens would pop out still and so it really was just kind of like are these better are these for athletics like right you know what i mean so it wasn't it wasn't great it, it really wasn't would they fog up uh no i don't remember them fogging up i didn't play that much so <laughs> 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 you weren't you weren't you weren't like doug collins or whatever working on the sweat just on the yeah. sideline i mean that's another shout out shout out to doug collins just always looking wet whether it was his oh, hair or his shirts just sweaty sweaty dress shirt yeah just oh. this was ridiculous michael's bodyguards being called the sniff brothers because they were quote unquote sniffing his jock i was like that is classic sports humor that one has not aged well at all, but two is like, it's not even funny. Like it's just terrible humor. I actually literally didn't even know why I was in there. It, I mean, maybe it was to, to elevate him to like, oh, he's descended to the guy who has or needs six bodyguards. But like, we already knew that. And it was just, I don't know. I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand it. And also did not understand the joke until they had to explain that it was about sniffing jocks. I actually thought, I thought they were saying the Smith brothers at first. So I was like, oh, all these guys have the same last name. That's kind of cool. They have with Jordan. So that's what I thought. And then he kind of explained it. But who are, the, who are they protecting him from? Like all those dudes were like 60 plus. First of all. I think he was protecting them from, from others. They were tiny men. I don't, I, it felt like uh, it might have been like father, older uncle type oh. relationship. You know, like we're just hanging out, talking shit, smoking cigars with Jordan, like that kind of thing. 
I'm pretty sure Jerry Krause assembled those security guards for Jordan. I think it's only funny when you guys make the joke. In the documentary, I was like, that's just stupid. <laughs> Shout out to um, a couple other females in there, you know, Barbara Walters, Madonna, Carmen Electra, but mostly like the Barbara Walters and Madonna clips. Like, I forgot. Rodman, the power of Rodman. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to the Rodman thing. And I said it earlier. This dude showed up at practice in his pajama pants. I was like, that dude didn't give a fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he Definitely. Didn't care about anything. I'm going to second the shout out to pajama pants. I mean, spe especially in the age of quarantine right now, <laughs> like shout out to pajama pants. Yeah. Right now we all get to show up to work hey. in pajama pants. Shout out to the Phil Jackson backstory. It seems so much like Phil and Rodman at some point were cut from the same cloth in different eras. Because, like, that dude was alternative, and Rodman was all, and, like, you saw some parallels that they were weaving, and I, I caught it. I was just like, oh, that's probably why those two guys connect. Also, the fact that the dude was tripping and said, I am a lion. <laughs> I am a lion. Oh, it's so good. Well, gentlemen, episode two in the books. Oh, that's it? That's it. I mean, there's one last shout out, which is the Bulls documentary or the Jordan slash Bulls documentary coming out in Taurus season, baby. It's Taurus season. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. we the same party for 13 years now and in no way that <laughs> Let's go. Before we get going today, I want to give a shout out to Will, Drew, Lamar, the 23 and We Dream team. And also want to give a shout out to Mike McGinley Music, who provides the soundtrack that you're hearing right now for this podcast. All right, y'all. We'll see you next time on 23 and We.